listeners, welcome back to Drunk Book Club, where we read stuff you've probably heard of but didn't bother to read. My name is Vry, and with me, as always, is Dorothy. Hello! This time around, we have done for you the most famous of tragedy porn authors. If you grew up in the 90s, I guarantee you heard of her. Lurleen McDaniel, one of the pioneering authors in creating the YA genre. I mean, I don't know that she's ever been formally acknowledged by scholars of the genre as that, but I definitely think an argument could be made just because of her very specific tact of writing stories for young teens about extremely serious subjects. I, I remember in the early 2000s, there was definitely a where do we shelve these kind of discussion. So, and also, I kind of want to give her that distinction because we're going to dunk on these books a lot. <laughs> I mean, I just, I don't know enough about the genre to say anything definitively. Fair. I'm, I'm working from my own experience as well. Yeah. I mean, she's definitely one of the ones that sticks out in my memories of the time. And, and Caroline B. Cooney, too. Yeah. Caroline B. Cooney um, was pretty huge uh, at my school growing up, for sure. Um, hell, I'd love to talk about the face on the milk carton sometime. I feel like that that is a distinct possibility for a future episode. Yeah. There was also the ones that everybody at my school had to read because they were specifically about a bunch of kids running away to Baltimore. Or, not to Baltimore. They passed through Baltimore, but they're headed to the eastern shore of Maryland. Cynthia Voigt's books? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Definitely read some of those. Although Jackaroo is by far the superior Cynthia Voigt book, by the way. <laughs> as long as we're putting down hot takes about old YA novels. <laughs> Look, Jackaroo was fucking good. It was not a story about a bunch of siblings running away to the eastern shore of Maryland and uh, the purity of being raised by their grandma instead of their drug-addled mommy who never actually got married legally. Uh-huh. Jackaroo was about a chick who finds a bandit outfit inside a hollow tree and just decides to wear it. Rockin'. And becomes a bandit. It's excellent. Look, all I'm saying is that Homecoming is the boxcar children for edgy teens. <laughs> I mean, uh -huh. you are not wrong. Exactly. It's also a weird experience to read Homecoming because it's a Maryland novel. Mm. And that's why it's assigned. It's a very weird experience to read it when you're the poor kid in a classroom full of extremely not poor kids because you live in the wrong neighborhood and go to the wrong school. Very different experience. Well, I'd say that we could generously call voyeurism a theme of today's episode. <laughs> uh, before we get into it, though, what are we drinking today? Ah, uh, yes. <sighs> these books are these books are essentially Christian fiction, in addition to being tragedy porn of teenagers. So we, there's not a lot of alcohol consumption clues within these books, because alcohol just doesn't exist. It's because true. of that, I had two options. Try and do something with the concept of watermelon, which is one of the two things people drink in these books, or just do a chocolate shake. 90% of the, the meals mentioned here are hamburgers and chocolate shakes. They're so wholesome. They're so wholesome and American. Such extremely wholesome kiddos. So yeah, we are drinking Kahlua mudslides. And audience, that's a big sacrifice for me. I fucking hate making blended drinks. They're good though. Yes, but I deeply resent them. Spur your local bartender. Order your drink on the rocks. <laughs> I have also had only one drink because this is this episode is going to go into Oh yeah, I had two, didn't I? 
Oh, that's a good sign. Liar. <laughs> but I, I, I have attempted to stay more sober than normal because this episode could go into some dark territory, and I want to. We're going to have to walk a fine line between mocking these books relentlessly and not being a dick. Yep. Content warning ahead of time for a lot of discussion of disease and chronic illness and death. Child death, specifically. So much child death. Oh, I may also this earlier this evening have indulged in another thematically appropriate intoxication option, because it's legal where I am, okay? I have no idea what you could be talking about. The kids in these books have never heard of weed. No, I mean- Sexual menace, yes. Weed, no. <laughs> I mean, me medical marijuana, not so much a thing. In 1985? I don't know. <laughs> it probably was a thing. No, no, it was not a thing. Oh. Look, I'm grasping at straws here. It, it's, a nice, it's a nice weed vape pen. We're enjoying it. Uh, as always, I am indulging in a sativa, a sativa strain because indicas do not play well with me. Uh, so for those of you who are our younger listeners uh, and grew up, you know, in the 2000s and are still adults. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> anyway, uh, Lurleen McDaniel recently retired, but was active for a long ass time. She started publishing in her first book. Unlike her protagonists. <laughs> Dark. Uh, she technically published her first novel in 1981. It, it was a YA horse girl novel. <laughs> like probably meant for middle school students. We didn't get actually get a hold of it. All of those really early ones are out of print. And... Novel age classifications were not necessarily as intensive or discussed as they are now. The YA boom has kind of changed a lot of the classification strictures and stuff. So, yeah, so we're it's kind of guessing. Fuzzy. And we are not experts, but we're doing our best. Yeah, I, I don't read enough YA novels um, to necessarily speak on it. So, and uh, I, I did, but. It's been about a decade since I was really immersed in that kind in that field. So. I haven't even read The Hate You Give yet, and I need to. Oh, same. Hard same. So, yeah, uh, McDaniel's career really kicked off in 1985 when she uh, wrote her first, when she wrote, in fact, the first of these four novels called Six Months to Live. There's a fifth one, but I ain't going out of my way to get that as well. It did not come in the prepackaged book. We're not reading it. Yeah. No, we did our time. Mm -hmm. Apparently Dawn gets paralyzed. Yep, because, I don't know, someone told Lorleen McDaniel that she hadn't written a novel about visible disability in her cancer series, so <laughs> I had to check that one off the bingo sheet. So she wrote Six Months to Live, and it was a huge smash hit. In fact, in 1989, it was put in a time capsule at the Library of Congress. They're going to open it in 2089, and they're all going to weep, because it's a bad book. No, they're going to weep because it's so touching and intense. I gotta think, Jesus Christ, were these the gender politics of the 80s? Teenage <laughs> girls had it rough. Um, I I did, in fact, read, I think, three of these books as a teenager. The last of them was written in 93. Yeah, it was 85, I think, 86, or 87. It, it was, there was a gap. It was like 85, 89, 91, 93. 93. Yeah. These novels were written over a span of time, and it boy does it tell in the later ones where she starts actively disengaging from any kind of mention of anything that would date it. It's it very... gets really awkward. 
Mm-hmm. It's interesting. And also, uh, it's got wandering sun syndrome, where the author started talking about a sensitive subject and then partway through realized, oh, fuck, I better do some research on this part group that I'm not a part of. Yeah. Fuck. Like sociological research. Um, even in the first book, uh, her medical specifics tended to be eh. researched. I won't say accurate, but researched. Employed a lot of specialist knowledge. Mm-hmm. There, there's you can definitely tell that she went to libraries a lot, and um, generally speaking, before we kind of get into the specifics specifics of these novels, which we are have both lost people to cancer, but neither of us have had cancer, and we do not have physical chronic illnesses. Yeah, um, so that's just as a head up. Um, I definitely was immersed in cancer culture a lot growing up. My mother is an um, oncology nurse. There we go. So I I heard a lot about treatment processes and uh, was around people living with cancer a lot when I was a little kid, but it's not the same thing. It's kind of why I can tell that these novels have a whiff of bystander syndrome about them. And I did not read McDaniels' novels as a teenager myself. I had a friend who um, who absolutely devoured them. Funnily enough, she had diabetes. Also, so you think maybe Daniels was McDaniels was hitting the mark in a way? Yes and no. I want to be careful here because here's the thing: is that she was she was an asshole. You're not friends anymore. And like by contrast, um, I have another friend who I am still friends with who who has a very serious debilitating uh, chronic illness and chronic pain issues who absolutely could not, when she got sick, absolutely could not deal with any kind of what's called sick lit, like tragedy porn books like this, because it, it did, it just made her more unhappy. And that is, I don't know. I just find that personally interesting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, different people respond to chronic illness in different ways just like they respond to any trauma in different ways so Mm -hmm. i guess it makes sense that some people would take comfort in in reading about perseverance through physical illness whereas others would not want to engage and map onto their own body Mm -hmm. those experiences yeah it's kind of the same way with me reading about different physical traumas and sexual traumas there are some that i can read and some that i don't want to Right, uh, hence your your real fondness for those the 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 gosh those books, the oh, daughter yeah. of the blood books. Yeah, Dark Jewels trilogy, which have been roundly lampooned fairly, but but um, I found those particular books extremely positive and cathartic because there's a hefty focus on rape in them, but the focus is on social affirmation of the idea that rape and sexual assault of children are universally negative. Harder to find than you would think. uh, Yeah, especially in a romance category book. And, um, yeah. So it's just, I think, one of those things that different people react to differently. Yeah, and McDaniels has on her website a lot about how people read her books and it inspired them to become doctors and nurses, and that's cool and great. We are not trying to take away from those people, but fucking hell, these books. (laughs) Yeah. Because here's the thing. All of our problems are up top. So when I was reading these as a 10-year-old, I was not relating realistically. This was just some morbid shit for me to read as a kid. Yep. Uh, I tried tried my best to do some reading ahead of time uh, looking for uh, disability scholars. And there's not much that I could access without 
access to academic journals, but it definitely, the consensus I was able to read up on was at best a You Tried Star, and at worst, the fact that these are novels that tend to portray kids as like, no, you're a normal kid inside, it's just that you have this problem on the outside. Rather than the problem being integrated into their their uh-huh. identity and interactions with the world. Right, and, and this, uh, which you see a lot in these Don Rochelle novels, this heavy this fetish shadow self mm-hmm. and this fetishistic focus on on achieving normalcy and shedding the abnormal mm-hmm. Which, but also the abnormal in these books is fetishized because it creates an artificial elevation mm-hmm. of the person in question on a spiritual level and like i don't know how much that vibed with disability politics of the 80s and and just like acknowledging that sickness in kids exists there wasn't there wasn't a lot of fiction about the acknowledging serious chronic illness in children that's one thing she did yeah most of the books about children's suffering that you could have read before this were um specifically morality porn yeah like written for older people to like clutch at their heartstrings and be like oh no dead children or or to be a scare mm-hmm. for other kids because again it was morality porn so it was always framed as and this is why she died because mm-hmm. she was a drug-addled little slut at 14. Like, go ask Alice. Right. I was about to say. <laughs> Which, we haven't read it on the show yet, but it's fake. Yeah, the the woman who wrote it was a psychologist? No, yes. I think she was an asshole. Well, why not both? <laughs> no, but she claimed she got it from a dying patient at a clinic, and she just wrote it. That's fucked up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it is a lie. So that's one step. Uh, that's one step up that McDaniel's has is that she is at least writing from something like lived experience, even though or kind it was of. her son's lived experience. Um, he was diagnosed with diabetes at age three, and that's why she became fascinated with chronic illness in children. But it's not a real close mat- mesh because a lot of her stuff focuses on, as this does, chronic illness crystallizing at the time of adolescence and mirroring the struggles of adolescence Mm -hmm. and affecting adolescent sexuality development and stuff, but we can't say that because it's Christian. Right. Yeah. Oh my God. So I'm not really sure where those aspects of it come in because again, her son had had a diagnosis from very early in his life Mm -hmm. juvenile diagnosed diabetes at age three and uh, according to her website is an adult married with children which good for him i guess um but yeah i i feel like that's so that's all of the everything around talking about these books (laughs) yeah and again we apologize if we fuck it up yeah we're stupid and also drunk we're trying our best Yes, and if we say something hurtful, we are sorry, and we'll try to do better. All right, so uh, Don Rochelle is this is a like five hundred and thirty-one page tome, and it's I can, four books in one. Uh huh. It's the collected Don Rochelle. Again, there was a fifth novel written nine years later in two thousand one. We ain't reading it. Nope, we don't play that way. They didn't package it. They specifically repackaged this edition for that new novel that came out. Yeah. I guess so the moms who read it could buy it for their daughters. Oh my god. Like, that's the thing. Yeah, these these span some time. Despite the huge number of pages, honestly, it 
is pretty easy to sum up. Uh, Don Rochelle is 13 years old. She gets leukemia. The first book is about her initial diagnosis and getting uh, treatment to send the cancer into remission. And her friend Sandy, who dies. Yep. Sandy's characteristics include she is her friend. Uh Uh-huh. She's very nice and pure. And she has the prettiest hair ribbons, which is sad because, you know, hair, radiation at all. There's a lot of fetishizing of Dawn's uh, beautiful chestnut hair. Yeah, it's... And then, of course, the first book also ends with an extensive Bible quote. Yep. Ecclesiastes, uh, whatever the fuck. You know the one. To everything, turn, turn, turn. (laughs) There is a season, turn, turn, turn. And I, I apologize, folks, but I cannot read that that bible verse without hearing that song i was raised by heathens who listen to hippie music (laughs) it's one of those things right because mcdaniels did write one uh christian regency novel before she started really getting into 16 books which shows why she's so good at genre constraints and marketing because the romance novel writing world is intensely marketing and branding focused because it, it's the biggest wing of publishing in the world and makes the most money in publishing because these people know how to write books for specific slices of audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there is a quote on her website about her methodology that says, uh, you know, she consults a lot with hospital workers uh, about procedures and techniques and but also she studies the bible so she can infuse her work with the human element the values and ethics often overlooked by the coldness of technology (laughs) and i i i (laughs) i don't want to bag too hard in some respects because like Faith can be a powerful thing, especially when you're going through hard shit and facing down a lot of death. But also, there is something about the way McDaniels writes that evokes a very particular kind of Christianity, let us say. A very exclusionary, particular kind of Christianity that is all warm and huggy in friendship as long as you fall inside a very certain parameter. And everybody in these novels does, so we never need to question that. I mean, maybe Alicia didn't. Oh. Yeah, we didn't read that book. That book was too much of a loaded gun, even for us. There's a book she wrote called uh, Baby Alicia is Dying, which is about a healthy young white girl who takes care of a young uh, black baby at a hospital who was born with HIV and dies at the end of the book. So that this girl can learn a lesson about... How sad it is and something something drug addicts. Oh my god. Yep. Which is kind of as good as McDaniels' novels might be and might have helped some people to do good work. She is also known as the tragedy porn author for a reason. Because she didn't just write cancer books. She's written about uh, blindness and paralysis and cystic fibrosis and a whole wide range of illnesses. Um, She wrote one about a girl with facial deformity falling in love with a blind boy who is hot. And then what What if they cure his blindness? He will know I'm not hot. So there are a lot of novels with a lot of very disparate experiences being crammed into a very a, consistent style. Yeah, a consistent style and a consistent art. It, it's because they're all about 
succumbing to the will of God and discovering grace. Uh Uh-huh. They're pop and swap in the same way that very formulaic romance novels are, which is fine in romance where you're like, and now this one has a mermaid and now this one has a fireman. Except that this is... Personally, I'm a reader of romance. I like romance novels. Yeah, no, no shade on romance. Sometimes people want trophy stuff. Also, go fuck yourself if you're one of these people who are like, why can't a story that doesn't have a happy ever after be counted as romance? The word you're looking for is love story. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. Yeah, it's the one requirement for romance genre to get those sweet, sweet dollars. And like, there's nothing wrong with the fact that romance follows a consistent formula, but you can't do that with chronic illness. That's not, that's not a fun hat like werewolf or vampire. Or dukes. Yep. You'll always know when you're reading a McDonald's novel because they always pop out about the same. And that's uncomfortable. I feel just sort of overview here. Yeah. So, yeah. In the first book, Dawn is diagnosed, gets treatment, goes into remission, Sandy dies. Also, Dawn Rochelle goes to cancer camp in the first book. Yes, cancer camp is a recurrent element. Yeah. Because these are young adult novels uh, in that kind of gray zone, so there's sort of the ritualistic pleasure of certain events like the the lists in harry potter novels it's going to come every year and be a little bit different but you know it's coming or i would also liken it to the yule ball in harry potter fan fiction Mm. you know that that trope that came around where because things are so upsetting we're going to do the yule ball every year because people like yule ball sequences right because it's it's a relief it is and it also allows you to bring in new characters that don't fit in the normal course of the novel and present a hint of um, of romantic isolation from parents. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that's the um, thing. Every year, Don do a, a prank at cancer camp. And I feel like that the, the camp is where it feels most like the books have Wandering Sun Syndrome, because in the third book, uh, there's a, a dedication at the front where she thanks uh, the kids at a camp that she spoke with. And consequently, that book feels very different as though she actually did some research before she wrote it yeah um the first couple of years the camp's description sounds a lot more like uh the diabetes camp that a guy i know went used to go to with some very uncomfortable race uh racist elements yeah that sticks around it sure does even with the research yeah there is a tradition at the camp of counselors dressing up in quote unquote indian costumes to honor the people who used to live here we're not gonna talk about why they're dead that's not sexy like cancer but you know we really feel for them so we stole their clothes (laughs) and their bonnets because you know they were putting on war bonnets like it's not specified but you know i mean feathers are mentioned so book two uh dawn starts to get sick again and she needs a bone marrow transplant and And also Rhonda. The MVP of these books is here. Yes, a moment for Rhonda, the bestest of friends. And we'll talk more about why she's the bestest of friends, but just know she's the bestest of friends. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, the actual most relevant character in the second book is Dawn's brother, Rob, who is the closest match. Uh, because you have to, for a tissue transplant, you want it to be as close as possible so that the body doesn't reject. And this is like 1989, so bone marrow transplants do exist technologically, but there's been huge leaps just since the last book was written, just in terms of types of care that are accessible to anyone. 
And the big drama is that Rob is also engaged, but Dawn's surgery means that they will have to postpone the wedding. And this is an opportunity to tell us what a bitch his fiance is. Well, she's blonde. Ah, and she goes to Aspen to ski. Which, like, maybe this is because I'm coming at this now with the landscape of healthcare being what it is, but I'm very surprised that Dawn's family is supposed to be, like, middle class or something. Right, it's, like, they're, they're very sniffy about the fact that this girl goes to Aspen and we're supposed to take that as fact that she's very upper class, but, like, it takes three books for them to even mention that, that Dawn's family struggles with the weight of medical bills, and even then, it's like, oh yeah, Rob almost had to drop out of college, not, we almost couldn't pay our mortgage. Yeah, but it does suggest that Rob would be able to, um, quote-unquote, support a new wife while working part-time at a pizzeria or whatever and staying enrolled in college. So that this might be also a dis- disconnection from the types of uh, financial roles and values that McDaniels herself grew up with. That was honestly what was most alienating to me. Because it's weird that Rob keeps just springing wedding expenses on his family. No, no, but she's going to pay for all of it. Don't worry. Well, he and Darcy um, do not get married because she's a bitch and evil. Well, and we know this because Dawn has a thing with teddy bears and Darcy tries to make good about this and she buys her a crystal teddy bear. It's like a fancy Tiffany one or whatever. But, you know, everyone knows teddy bears are not supposed to be hard and cold. They're supposed to be soft and cuddly and like... It's literally the first time you've met. She's giving you a nice present. Dawn's one of those characters who is simultaneously dumb as a rock and also able to leap to the wildest conclusions about why anything nice anybody does is actually a bitch move. Uh-huh. Yeah, she's very Bella Swan in that way. Yeah, or um, what's-her-fuck from Audrina. Right. Audrina. Audrina. Which Audrina? <laughs> Uh, the, the the second and worst. Yeah. Fair. <laughs> True. We are eventually given to know that Darcy is actually terrible because, what you know, it's one thing that she's uncomfortable and doesn't know how to be around somebody who is seriously ill, but, but, but then she decides to double down and try to cut her out of her, fia- you know, her brother's life. So, like, fair enough, I guess. But also all of the tells are so extremely... Women do be competing. And a lot of that book shifts out of Dawn's um, perspective because she's in a coma. It cheats. Yeah, she cheats and I hate it. She goes into a coma and then it's from Rob's perspective for a while. He's boring. It tries to smooth it over by like, he's writing in her diary so that she'll have a record, but it's still, it's still a cheat. It's the only book that does this. But then he meets a plain and godly girl who works as a nurse. Uh Uh-huh, and it's explicitly mentioned that uh, she has a natural, healthy kind of beauty. You know, the kind who, the quote-unquote, doesn't wear makeup look. She wears makeup. She's a nurse. Uh Uh-huh. Kate seems fine. She seems fine, but it's just so transparent what's going on there. There, There's definitely... Lorleen McDaniels had auburn hair. Mm -hmm. I don't know if she still does. She's alive. She's not dead. No, she's just retired. You know, pray for Lillian McDaniels. She ain't dead. (laughs) But she'd really appreciate it. (laughs) Yeah, there's, there is a recurrent element in these books that on the one hand, you need to work really hard to dress up and look pretty for boys, especially if you're sick. Like, you gotta compensate for that sick look. Like, on the one hand, it feels like these books want to make dawn feel better about the fact that she's sick and that has physical effects on your body but the way they do that is not saying you know you look fine it's fine other people are assholes it's no no you're really pretty you'll look normal again soon yeah th- there's a pretty dawn rochelle living inside 
the ugly sick Dawn. And it'll come back. She will get normal again. Yeah. And again, there's an almost fetishistic joy taken in talking about threats to Dawn's hair. Uh-huh. And the loss of it and the regrowth of it. Well, um, you know, it is a her- woman's crowning glory. I don't know what that means. It's a Bible thing. But um, she always loses her hair every time she becomes ill. And there's always extended discussion of the regrowth and how she will never cut her hair again because she associates short hair with negative things. And on its own, that would be okay. But also, Mm -hmm. there are the implications that she has learned through her trauma the proper way her body should be displayed, which is with long hair. It's bad and upsetting in ways that are totally unconscious, and that makes it even more upsetting. Um, And in book three, this whole appearance thing comes way to the fore. Uh Uh-huh, because book three is mostly at camp, because all of a sudden this camp has counselor and training roles now. Because we need an excuse for Dawn to be back at the camp. So she is 15, and she goes there to become an assistant counselor who's essentially there to be moral support for, like, as an intermediary for the young kids who have cancer, but who isn't a full-time counselor, who also have to be medically trained, you know, because they're giving out medication for these really sick kids and such. Yeah. Dawn meets a kid who's an asshole. Yep. She's the angry sick kid. But, like, Marley... I like Marley. I, I, I too, enjoy Marley. Um, she reminds me of a character from another book about summer camp that I read a lot when I was, like, ten. I can't remember what it was called or what her name was, but... She was a rich girl who is angry that her family dump her at camp because they don't love her. And she and the main character became best friends. Ah. They were gay. Of course. All the best children's book protagonists are. And, you know, they they swore that they would be best friends always and totally, Mm -hmm. you know, every year. So that's who Marley reminds me of. Marley is a little shit, but in a completely, like... In an understandable way. We are told- A way that makes more sense than Dawn. Mm-hmm. We're told that other kids have had anger issues and Dawn was just able to get through to them. Like a Mike, a kid who uses a prosthetic because he had to have an operation. But Mike was never actually shown being angry or bitter and he only interacted with Sandy anyway. Yeah, Mike was always a chill dude. And then by the time we hear actually he had a lot of anger about, you know, his illness, he's gone. He yeah. is no longer a part of the book. I tell you what- I wonder what the fuck happened with her decisions about writing Greg. Because Greg just blinks out of existence. Poor Greg. What the fuck happened to Greg? (laughs) I mean, he moved out of Ohio. Okay. What the fuck? They took him to a farm upstate where he can frolic with all the other Ohioans. Yeah, that's a fucked up joke in these books, though. That's true. I'm a bad person to feel that. it's clear when somebody dies. That's true. That's what makes it sinister. (laughs) Fuck. (laughs) Yeah, there's Dawn has so many rotating love interests, but none that like she kisses each of them approximately once and then no, they no, move along. Exactly once. They keep count. <laughs> and then Jake Macca comes back. Yep. But yeah, that, that is the actual love interest's name. Jack Macca. Uh, Jake Macca. Yep, her childhood friend because he's the first one she imprinted on, so they're going to fucking have babies. God decreed it. You wouldn't want to go against God, would you? And it's so but she, so her love interest for book three is not Jake because he tragically moved away for like a hot second and came right back. What ha- what did his father do Never is what I want to know. fuck your ex's sibling. Just don't do it. Because her love interest in this book is Sandy's brother. 
which I I am shaky on the idea of we brought back older kids to be like emotional support. But like, it, I, I haven't heard of that, but that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. And I get why it makes sense. We allowed the brother of a a camper who died, died several years ago. <laughs> and that camper wasn't even supposed to be at this camp because it's Ohio specific. And they are from West Virginia. Uh-huh. I tortured Rice so much while reading this book. The the way the, uh, Sandy and Brett are are written characterized the, right the way their dialogue is written you and the descriptions of their dialogue uh huh you you are trained to hear a a Texan drawl basically but yeah because it's treated as a deep Southern accent mm-hmm. but so obviously I had to torture Vry by just doing Duck Newton's voice <laughs> because they're from fucking West Virginia. They're from West Virginia. I'm from Maryland. I know what a fucking West Virginia accent is, and so do all of you now. You have all watched at least one Monster Factory. Why would you put the Mackle Boys in here? Because it's fucking funny. They're nice. Their mom died of cancer. <laughs> yeah, but but that that's what these characters are supposed to sound like. That's what they should sound like. Also, Cancer Camp is written by a doctor named Dr. Ben Isaacson. Uh, they prank him every year. Yep. I mean, better than her recurrent doctor and his particular speech dialect. Yeah, Dr. Singh. Um, I did my level best not to picture a racist accent, but then he had a longer chunk of dialogue and it was full on a poo. It was uncomfortable. The thrust of the Cancer Camp book is Dawn has the Doki Dokis for Brent, which is weird because, you know dead bestie yeah and he shouldn't be there and also she's trying to reach this kid and also um he will never understand her because he didn't have cancer mm-hmm. nobody can ever understand her except other people who have who share with her the bond of cancer which is a phrase that's used which it would make more sense if don were allowed to be angrier i feel like yep yep but instead the, the the goal of the novel is not ne- it it is to like reach and bond with Marley and like understand why she's mad but through the form of we need to get her to interact in socially acceptable ways and put on makeup with the girls well and also specifically um Marley is shown as deviant because she doesn't want to wear a scarf mm-hmm. she or doesn't, a wig yeah she's got tufty hair that because it's you know fallen out from treatment and it's growing back. It's also treated as an absolute imperative that she start wearing makeup, even though she explains a very specific reason why she doesn't wear makeup anymore. And again, this child is 13. She is an infant baby. So she used to wear makeup before she lost her eye and was given a prosthetic because when she tried to put makeup on after the prosthetic, it slid around and stimulated her tear gland. So it it ran and it stung. And it dried out her socket and it turned into a whole thing. So that's why she doesn't wear makeup. And they just sort of shrug that off after she says that. And then she goes and plays with the other girls and does a makeup look. And it's it's really uncomfortable. And that's important because it allows her to bond with the other female campers. Uh-huh. And like, there's nothing wrong with wanting you know if you want to do that but the the fact that it is so imperative it is her only way to be to be redeemed as a character this is how we know she's come a a long way and also the fact that she wants to smooch a boy Mm -hmm. 
And then she does a prank on Dr. Isaacson, where she pretends that her eye fell out during a game of tug of war and then throws marbles all over the place to freak him out. Which, like, this is a prank with a lot more edge than any of Dawn's stupid pranks, uh which involved running his underwear up the flagpole and... The most 80s thing. And dumping eggs and flour on him. Which was weird. So then they come back from cancer camp and... Marley dies. Yeah. Yeah. But she dies in a really long, protracted way. Yeah. Uh, Unlike Sandy, who died off screen. There's this extended sequence where Dawn gives Marley her number because she feels guilted into it and then keeps getting called to the hospital and feels bad about it and then feels bad for feeling bad about it. And when Marley is eventually close enough to death, she gets really vulnerable and we learn that her grandmother is, you know, rich, but also ill. And so she, you know, then we can have all of her tragic backstory. And then she does. Yep. And it's so sad that she died never having been kissed also Mar- by a boy. Also, Marley had a genius level intellect, I guess. Oh, Rhonda also has a breakdown cry. Uh-huh. Because she's severely traumatized by the entire concept of Dawn going to a hospital at all. <sighs> this is not examined. Uh, because Rhonda is too shallow because she has never been dying. And, like, I I get that when you've had, like, a life-altering experience, it makes you feel separated from other people. But Rhonda is explicitly a lower form of life than Dawn. Uh-huh. Because Rhonda, as far as Dawn knows, has never experienced mortal terror. Which gets to the moment of, like, who are these books for? Because... I always felt like a lot of the people that I saw reading them were not kids who had chronic illness. I mentioned voyeurism early on in the podcast. Yeah. It's one of those things of like marketing versus of of marketing existing audience versus intended audience and how far do good intentions go. I kind of feel like the first book probably was written for kids experiencing illness mm-hmm. um, because a lot of that book boils down to, so you're in a bad situation. Here's what it's going to be like. Here's what they're going to do. Everybody will be very nice and do their best for you. And ultimately they'll help you and mm-hmm. you'll come out of it a stronger person. Um, it's very one one It uses a lot of techno babble and explanations of techniques and but it's also very surface level and facile. Everything goes smoothly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a very comfort read, I feel like. Whereas this, the second, like, Dawn is still sick in, in the next two novels, but there is a lot of emphasis on secondhand observance of illness. Like, in the second one, you get a lot about Rob freaking out and wondering about how sad it is and how she could die so young. And then I was really uncomfortable with the description of Marley's illness in the third book and like how she's got tumors all over her organs and they're just pressing inside of her. And I'm like, like it feels like, oh man, isn't this gruesome? Isn't it sad? Um, there's also a lot in later through the series of Dawn equating having experienced emotionally and also having physically suffered pain between finite points of time with long-term physical changes that other characters have experienced, like losing limbs. Mm -hmm. Like she equates having her hair fall out at one point with another character's loss of a leg when he used to be an athlete. And you may be wondering to yourself at home, is there Holocaust imagery in these books? 
Don't worry. There jo- is. Jonathan Gronathan <laughs> comes from good stock. <laughs> like, having cancer is serious, but Jesus Christ, it's not the Holocaust. The fart in our stalls would disagree with you. That <laughs> would be wrong. <laughs> she, she doesn't fuck anybody after going to the Holocaust Museum or Anne Frank's house. No, because that would be acknowledging because, that people fuck in this universe. Right, because that would be fuck it. Uh-huh. That's the only reason. She would if they were not all smooth as a Ken doll. <laughs> Speaking of voyeurism, what these books ended, like, around this time is when I had, like, a moment of clarity... Oh my god, reading these books reminds me of playing Doki Doki Literature Club, a game that I really hate, but can acknowledge that it came from really good intentions to open up the conversation about mental illness at, by a person who doesn't necessarily live with mental illness, and I do, um, and make you know people feel seen. But the result was, <laughs> this feels like something meant to educate people who don't have mental illness and it makes me a player with mental illness feel slightly alienated and put on display i can see what you meant to do here but this thing ostensibly about me is not for me i feel that way with a lot of um sexual assault literature as well Mm -hmm. and maybe i'm wrong i i am in all seriousness if you are like a disabled listener and got something out of these books i i really super want to hear from you or if you hated these books either or um, but that is definitely the feeling I got as someone who has been adjacent to a lot of people with serious illness. And this is a discussion that I've had to have with uh, department heads before. Mm-hmm. I used to study and work in a department where every fall the department head would circulate a uh, as many links as she could find about the dangers of uh, giving trigger or content warnings at the beginning of a class and how this God. is academic censorship. And all the time, the um, the tone to these was to give trigger warnings would allow the sheltered youth of our classes to refuse to hear about real problems, and thus they will not internalize the lessons thereof. And it always missed out on the idea that certain segments of the class, specifically the ones asking for trigger warnings, are already well aware of these problems and and that these are bad things. There's always a presumption that the type of person a book is about doesn't actually exist within the readership. It's a Venn diagram where the circles don't touch. I think that McDaniels is better than many who came after her in that she clearly has put a lot of research into medical aspects and hopefully talking to patients. But Well, she knows all about the psychological aspects, too. Oh, my God. Because of Jesus. God. Um, but but so book four, the world bows to dawn. Basically, um, right. So Marley is dead. Her grandmother is also conveniently dead, and they're building. Her grandma was rich. Uh huh. They're building a Marley whatever a wing, and they're going to, in the case of art imitating life, they are going to make a time capsule. Dawn gets to decide what goes in it, and also she's supposed she, to. She and she alone. Uh huh. No other cancer children matter. Only the friend of the rich girl who died. Uh-huh. At which point these book the books do kind of go from like heartfelt di- like discussion of illness for scared kids to self-parody. 
she alone is going to give this speech and make this time capsule that will be will live on for a hundred years because an eccentric rich person named her. But but more importantly, boys. So much about boys. So Don Rochelle is the purest, most innocent girl who ever lived, and also she uh, she was slow in developing her curves and bumps. On account a, of weight loss. A repeated phrase that makes me a super uncomfortable. Her friend is kind of a hoe but never gets any, and I love Rhonda. Rhonda's- Rhonda goes hard. Rhonda is a real one, yo. There has never been as good of a friend as Rhonda, and Dawn does not deserve her. Mm-hmm. It's true. Rhonda MVP. It's it's even specifically mentioned that Dawn never really thought of Rhonda as a very good friend. Yeah, there's, there's this moment where- this shitty moment. Where Rhonda gets to be like, <laughs> man- I'm sad about your dead friend, but you gotta call her your best friend to my face. I'm right here. <laughs> like, she's been dead for three years. And I've been here the whole time. Like, what the fuck? And basically, Don shrugs it off because Rhonda's insensitive. Uh-huh. Don's kind of... It's weird to say about a, a protagonist with cancer, but Don is an asshole. She, she kind of super is. Uh-huh. Because she doesn't think about anybody else's internal life. Ever. I guess that's what these- It's very simplistic writing, but- Yeah, well- But Dawn is- And I guess that's that's what probably appealed to a lot of kids who weren't sick who are reading these books, is that it is a reason to be self-absorbed in the way that teenagers generally are, but you have an excuse for it. Because you have the worst problem in the world. You're dying. Right. You literally do. You have the worst problem, and therefore, it's good. I mean, I definitely... Even though Dawn's not dying. I definitely read... I did not read McDaniel specifically, but I definitely read some some illness porn books that were like, oh man, if I could just get a really serious disease, I would lose like 40 pounds. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. If I just get real sick for like a year, I'll get to be out of school. All the assholes in my grade will move on one year. Uh-huh. They'll all know how special I am. I'll lose a lot of weight and nobody will be mean to me. Which is fucked up, we acknowledge, but like... But like, I'd lose weight, though. Uh-huh. Which was another thing that keeps coming up, is how skinny Dawn is. Mm-hmm. Oh, God, yes. The endless... Except when we want her to be at her ugliest, when she coincidentally gets bloat from her medications. All of the times when she's at her lowest are when she's puffy. Not fat, God forbid. But puffy from edema. And there are, there are all these, like small shitty jokes about other people's figures and like her mom like her mom like they're mean to her mom she and her brother are just mean to their mom Uh uh-huh randomly in an affectionate scene why telling her she has the figure of a movie star miss piggy oh and that's kind of the it was kind of all downhill from that from there for me it was like oh you can't even be nice to your mother all right who is nice because there are no mean people in these books except bitches. Uh-huh. Which They're there the is only, one in this book. The only interpersonal conflict is bitchy girls. Yeah, it's true. All dudes are nice and understanding. Even the ones who murder their daughters. Oh my god, we skipped right the fuck over that. We did, because I thought we'd come back to the details. Y'all? <laughs> Let's just finish talking about this one. Okay. Nothing Weird. happens. Nothing happens. Uh, She's juggling... Two dudes. She's worried that- The other two she used to to think about maybe kissing her on the cheek 
have vanished from the universe. They don't exist. She blinked them out of existence. Uh They did not please her, and she sent them to the (laughs) cornfield. That's what happens to all her friends. She gets tired of the emotional investment and just wishes them into the cornfield. I mean, it's for the best with Brent. Like, he... It's one of those things from 80s books, right? No, I meant uh, Greg and Mike. Well, them too. But, like, Brent is in the cornfield now. Mm-hmm. Good for him. Because he, he in college and she's a sophomore and yeah, that's weird. Yeah, there's a lot of discussion of what acceptable age gaps are in high school to college relationships. And we're repeatedly told that Don's relationship of that nature is good and godly versus the ones that her friend fantasized about while having a crush no no that's that's weird Rhonda's weird and like i guess good that that it's played off as like that's never going anywhere but the fact that again don don gets to smooch the college boy and it's fine and good and godly yeah but but she's gonna end up with the first boy she imprinted on though yeah jake mack Move, who moved away for two books so she could smooch a couple guys. <laughs> and he came back in like six months. What did his dad do? Did he kill someone? Every time his dad gets a promotion, they move. I think it means they're in the witness protection program. <laughs> I have my suspicions. His real name is Jake Macaroni. Oh, shit. It's all coming together. They're an Italian family. Sicilian, even. <laughs> I can't tell you. He does have black hair and dark brown eyes. Those are the only two features we ever get of any character. Mm-hmm. Which I guess when you have that little word space, but... Yeah, descriptions are not a thing in these books, except when she suddenly really wants you to notice everything, anything, and then suddenly an 18th century armoire pops out of the white void of the Matrix. It's like that's, you know, it's, it's like the other world in Coraline. Yeah, nothing exists until suddenly <laughs> this one very specific object exists in a room of sketches. Mm-hmm. And there, there's like a brief scare where Don worries that she might be rejecting, but... But it turns out it was just a rash because she had pneumonia, which is no big deal in these books. We've got bigger fish to fry. She finally realized she should probably mention to Don, her protagonist, that Don's sterile. Yeah, and like... And it really feels like she forgot about this until now. Because that feels like it should be a bigger deal. Yeah. And earlier on, like, Dawn's parents just forgot to mention her her loss of fertility for four years. It is weird. Because, like, on the one hand, yes, it's it's very serious to have, like, that element of choice taken away from you and you didn't even know but also when the doctor is like oh you know you can still have kids there there are lots of options for potentially like in vitro or adoption and it's like he suggested cutting open a baby on a satan altar (laughs) and also then when she reacts in the good and proper way of rejecting the concept of adoption even though you know these people really want you to put your kid up for adoption instead of have an abortion Mm. like who the fuck's gonna adopt Y'all don't. Then she's assured that, well, there's always experimental uh, surgeries happening. Maybe doctors will make it so you can have babies. We don't know. Medical technology is amazing. Remember that that bone marrow donation you got? Yeah. And it's twisted around into this really weird thing where because medicine's good and amazing, we're assured that her problem will possibly be cured in the future. When... So much of this book rests on the uncertainty of whether the therapy she's currently receiving will be effective. 
And it, it does such a disservice to, like, a legit serious issue because it's so... Because it's like, don't worry, Dawn will get pregnant. Well, and also it's so tied up in all of the really normative femininity that the rest of the books do. Mm-hmm. That it just feels like more bullshit. Like, not, not this is a serious, scary thing you didn't know about your body, but, like, you're but, not a full, normal woman. But, yeah, this is another reason why a man would reject you, which is what female normalcy is in these books. Uh-huh. Is acceptability to be fucked, not just by a boy, but specifically by a boy who doesn't have the illness that you have. Mm-hmm. Like she goes or back- Or any illness. Right. She goes back and forth being like, can a normal boy ever love me? Will he ever understand what well, I've been through? Well, with but... multiple boys who've had cancer. Uh-huh. Who seem very nice and then disappear to the cornfield. Yeah. And there's also- This book feels so overstuffed despite the fact that nothing happens. Yeah. Because like there's also there's... the thing with, with the- with people trying to get her to join group therapy which i feel like was an add-in because it was so many years on and this was now a thing but it doesn't feel organic to the don rochelle universe that started you know like eight years earlier right because it's like a relevant discussion of like no it's like you know post-traumatic stress you're not just better because you got home yeah you probably need ongoing support and for your adjustment socially uh-huh. That's another thing. These books keep trying to assure us that Dawn, is, because she's wise from having had a terminal illness, she is socially advanced and doesn't fit in with her peers. Whereas I wish I could write it off as this is Dawn's perceptions versus reality. But these books ain't that deep. <laughs> um, we say whereas, an hour in. <laughs> like, if you've been out of school for a year, yes, you are going to be socially out of sync with your classmates, but not because you've developed more socially. It's because you've developed less and don't have the common touchstones of experience because you were locked away in a hospital or being homeschooled or whatever. It is is different. Yeah. I was homeschooled for a year. You did okay. But like, that's the thing. The out of syncness wasn't because I suddenly was so much more worldly. It, it kind of trails off into a whole lot of nothing, but like a spotlight for uh, for Rhonda. Rhonda's so good. Pulls the best move. Um, there is a bitch um, being a bitch by existing near a boy that Dawn likes who assures Dawn that no, no. She forced me to ask her to the party. Right. I didn't actually want her here. At the snowflake party. That, that's the theme. Snowflakes. Yep. It's very evocative, isn't it? She's being a bitch in, John, in Dawn's direction because, of course, the only reason to move in on Dawn's boy is not because he has inherent value as a person, but specifically to fuck with Dawn. Gotta stick it to this other girl. <laughs> These books have a lot of unexamined gay subtext. Oh, a lot. But we have to talk about Sandy for that. <laughs> Rhonda dares to walk up to the most popular girl in school and accidentally trips and accidentally spills bright red punch down this girl's dress. Her white dress. For the snowflake ball. It's very good. It's so good. Rhonda's a real one. Rhonda's extremely good as the Rhonda thing. will fuck people's shit up. And then, you know, we're in Dawn's head and Dawn's wondering, was that really an accident? Sweetie. You don't know what you've got. <laughs> And then Don gets pneumonia, is cured of pneumonia, and gives the speech. Yep, the end. And there was a fifth book we didn't read. And, and then totally she thinks she's going to be a doctor someday. Because uh-huh. it's just occurred to her. 
in the first book, you know, they, they said she wanted to be a lawyer because her dad said she could argue the fuzz off a peach, which I find difficult to believe because nobody in these universe, this universe argues. And Dawn, especially, never says anything against anyone else. She just stews about it. Yeah, she's not a particularly aggressive or in confrontational character at all. Um, basically, problems just happen and then they're solved without her agency. Yep. And then she feels about them. She doesn't act, she feels. Oh, boy. And she feels so much mm -hmm. for only one human being. I Part of me wants to give credit to the fact that in spite of the fact that the that women be competing and talking about boys all the time, these books do at least theoretically nod towards the importance of female friendship. Yeah, the only significant uh, relationships Dawn has are with girls. The boys are just different hunks of meat. But Sandy and Rhonda are the most important recurrent characters. And and Kate. Kate yeah. is actually a surprisingly well-rounded character. The, the ranks of meat are Mike, meat with a visible physical disability. Greg, meat with no visible disabilities, but has had cancer. Brent, meat who has never had cancer, but is related to somebody who had cancer and therefore might know something about what Dawn has experienced. And looks like her dead friend, but is acceptable to kiss. And top-level meat, Jake Macca. Has never had cancer and doesn't know much about it. It's weird how that shakes out, considering all the stewing that she ostensibly does. Mm-hmm. But there is a secret golden ultra-top-level, which is, meet what is a girl like me and also died of cancer. No one can touch that rank. It feels... It's so much. It's so much. Because, like, they're bestest friends and they're really close and they're bonded by their... It's some fried green tomato shit. Yeah, they are 13 years old and Sandy will never be older and therefore can never do anything wrong. So she is a sanctified, hallowed memory. And the reason she dies is because she gets out of can She gets out of the hospital slightly before dawn, and but goes into remission. Well, she goes into remission and then her cancer comes back after cancer camp. This camp is cursed, y'all. And her dad, who is stupid, is like, well, the doctors couldn't fix you, so I shouldn't send you back there. Well, it's specifically mentioned that he can't handle the sight of her in pain. Bad news, my sir. So he takes her down to Mexico, where, um, I'll link it in the show notes, there's a really interesting episode of, of Ono, oh Ross, and Carrie, where they actually took a bus down to Tijuana with a lot of other cancer patients and went to some of these clinics that do experimental therapy. And there is just this palpable sense of desperation and people who are out of treatment options. So they've come down to try these things out. And some doctors And there's who, this dude named Wade there. Uh-huh. And there's, there's like, some dudes... <laughs> you wear a Deadpool hoodie daily. Yeah. I mean, some, some of those places are genuinely trying to help people. And some of them are obvious scams. But that's... This book... Here's the thing, after after the cancer camp and the white people dressed up as Native Americans, all I can read, all I can read in the we took our daughter to Mexico and she died there because the treatments didn't work is low-key racism about how Mexico doesn't do medicine as good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you know, it was it was less physically taxing and she died peacefully and comfortably. She died, though. Right. But it's, like, super emphasized that she went peacefully because she deserves that. Yeah, and it's it's definitely the moment at, at which the books most strongly reek of it's all cool because Jesus. 
Yeah, because she mails Dawn a passage of Ecclesiastes. Mm-hmm. For for the most part, the books ha- are like low key bath background Christmas Christmas. Christmas. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Dead thirteen year olds. <laughs> Marley's also thirteen when she dies. Whoa. The, the the Christianity in these books is mostly like low key, and then it'll pop up weirdly in a conversation and be like, "Oh fuck, I forgot you were there!" Like a rude <laughs> guest at a party who won't leave. Yeah, like suddenly in the midst of discussing treatments, a, a, a nurse starts talking about the Bible. Uh huh. But the end of the first book is when it overwhelmingly goes. Specifically, we don't have to think about the consequences of death on practical everyday reality because Jesus got it handled. Don't worry about it. But do you think, uh, what do you think saved Sandy? Was it her deeds or grace? I'm gonna throw this book at you. (laughs) I don't even go here. (laughs) It's so much on so many levels and it's not good. Also, Dawn's gay. I, I don't, no, we don't need her. She's not welcome. She's an asshole. No, but seriously, we have to talk about this. We're talking about Sandy. Yeah, like I said, there's there's a lot of low key, unexamined gay subtext <laughs> in how in her incredibly worshipful descriptions of Sandy, the sainted Sandy who talks like Griffin McElroy. Anytime you read one of her lines, you have to picture it as Griffin. He he does. She does have a a thick West Virginian drawl. And you have to picture uh, Brent as as Duck Newton. Sorry. There's a bit in the third book where it seems like they're hinting at Brent trying to gropingly express the idea that he's angry at his father for her death. But it just circles back around to the recurring theme that men externalize their feelings about female suffering and violence. And also his legitimate anger is, is dismissed as, oh, well, I'm, you know, he, he, he just had so many know. feelings. Well, and you never know. She might have also died here. So why does it matter? Which is, what the fuck? Because there- so much of these books are about struggling internally to stay alive. But for his sake, because he's having a feeling. It's so much. Um, the death porn in these books is so much. But yeah, that that's a recurrent thing is guys is guys feeling specifically resistant to viewing medical treatments administered to the female characters who are actually experiencing illness because those treatments look painful. Viewing female suffering is worse than enabling female death emotionally to these guys. It hurts them more to see a girl looking like she's in pain than for that girl to die. Fucked up. I mean, Rob, Rob's okay. He's Rob, okay. Rob expresses the same emotions, though. He does. Like, you, we wallow in it. He does also ask what all of you <laughs> um, brilliant medical whiz brains are gonna do about the fact that you did not <laughs> cure my sister's cancer. I would like to speak with a manager. <laughs> He does spine up and and off and and give up that their bone marrow though. So it doesn't. It's weird. It focuses more on the physical pain he experiences from donating bone marrow than on the first time Don gets a bone marrow biopsy in her hip, 
which incredibly painful. Time, which, by the way, the, that whole first day where she's diagnosed is fucking wild. Because apparently she goes into her family practitioner for a follow-up appointment after they thought she had the flu last week. Which she would presumably be over by now. And he's like, yeah, you have cancer. I've booked you an inpatient room at the city hospital. You're going there today. I didn't tell you or your parents over the phone. That's how that works, right? I Now, I, again, I'm not an expert here. But I feel like, no. I, I don't believe that they do that without asking, no. We'll just bill it to the incredibly comprehensive health insurance that you people apparently have. <laughs> Covers watermelon milkshakes in the middle of the night. Oh, God. I mean, that's a thing. I know that's a thing. (laughs) It is horrifying. (laughs) I mean, you can't enjoy Reese's Cups anymore. No, because the flu broke my mouth. Yeah, that's just a thing that happens sometimes, listeners. Sometimes you get sick and nothing tastes the same. Uh Uh-huh. This is exacerbated, you know, extremely high-level drugs. It's fucked up. I'm just glad my granddad still liked the way cake tasted when I made him one. Yeah, it was nice. Yeah. Dawn had a cross on Sandy. And yep. she never gets over it. Every emotional relationship she has in these books circles around the fact that they will never understand her the way Sandy did. Sandy had so many traits. Like her niceness and her love of hair ribbons? And her niceness. Yeah. <laughs> like it's so- oh, oh, wait. And her love of hair ribbons. Oh, shit. I forgot about that one. Also, one time she made a necklace out of popcorn. It is some separate piece bullshit. (laughs) Tell me I am wrong. Well, except that, you know, Dawn knows not to blame herself for Sandy's death. That's because they were young and innocent, and death happened before she could know the full magnitude of her sin. (laughs) So, from Sandy, we go to Rhonda, the inferior follow-up. Poor, poor Rhonda, who, who we are told constantly flirts with boys all of the time. And is bubble-headed and uh-huh. not so bright as Dawn, because Dawn is wise. Don't, well, we don't also, we also don't want her to be competition. Yeah. No, she, she has to be inferior to Dawn with any boy Dawn interacts with. Mm-hmm. Including Dawn's brother. Which is weird. Weird. Much There is that weird scene where... Rob comes home and Don leaps into his arms and he swings her around and their mom scolds him and Don gets mad because how dare you say that, that I shouldn't treat my body any way I want. It is strong and healthy. And the mom and Rob both react like, no, no, it's just because you're a grown up lady now and he shouldn't be touching you like that. It's very Setsuna and Sarah Mudo. I'm just saying. <laughs> there's, there's some undertones. The tones are under. <laughs> But again, only only normative sexuality will be expressed. That is the only acceptable <laughs> On thing. On the page. <laughs> so, squish that subtext down. But yeah, so Rhonda is inferior to Sandy and is constantly told as much. And also we're told that Dawn never thought of them as friends anyway before she went to the hospital. They were just both on the cheerleading squad. But Rhonda apparently always thought they were really, really, really good friends. And like, it kind of gives the vibe that Dawn was sort of a bitchy cheerleader before she went to the hospital. It's weird. Yeah, it's a sudden moment of unexpected insight into Rhonda's character that's 
never really explored further. Yeah, because like the first time Dawn went to the hospital when she didn't even think Rhonda was in, was important to her, Rhonda like got the whole class to write her letters and arrange homework being sent and stuff. So apparently Rhonda thought they were good friends. And she was kind of awkward about it, like you do, but she never stopped visiting. Whereas everybody else, like Irene or Fiona or whatever, poof. The lesson of these books is Rhonda good. In one of the books, Rhonda gets Don a um, a job at Rhonda's uncle's ice cream parlor, and then Don is conveniently saved from having to do any labor all summer by various cancer-related responsibilities, by which I mean she no longer has cancer, but cancer stuff just keeps conveniently preventing her from having to work with Rhonda. And when she finally says, yeah, I'm just not going to do this job, Rhonda collapses on the floor in a crying fit. She's having an anxiety attack over Dawn going away from her because she relates it to the idea of Dawn dying. Yeah, it's a weird duality of these books of that, like, bystander voyeurism that's going on, but also a ver- a, a kind of continual disdain for people, for healthy people, because they're not as deep. But but yeah, R- Rhonda's in love with Dawn, and, and it is not having it. It's not dealing with it. It's definitely not acknowledging it. She'll move on to somebody better. It'll be okay. I hope. I hope. She, she deserves better, let's be mm-hmm. honest. Because again, Dawn has gone through some terrible life events. She's also an asshole. She's very self-absorbed. Uh-huh. Because even other people's deaths only happen in relation to Dawn. Which, granted, she's a young teen. So, young teens are assholes. Yes, I, th- I think we can all acknowledge that we were terrible at ages 13 to 15. I was reading these books. Exactly. But also, I don't like her. So, you know. <laughs> It comes out. Yeah, I can't say that these are fun reading. I don't... I don't know who they're for. Yeah. Again, the first one, I think, probably was meant for children experiencing illness. Mm -hmm. The later one's not so much. And, like, on that front, there's got to be way better books at Mm. this point written by actual people with, like, authors who have lived through chronic illness or serious disease yeah yeah although i will say these books are are why whenever i have an unexplained bruise my mind immediately goes oh no do i have leukemia it could be it could be happening anytime i could be the next special (laughs) which is absolutely what healthy readers of these books were thinking i i mean that's not what i think now no but these books definitely made me like the idea of unexplained bruises with cancer, and it will never go away. Honestly, these books are mostly, even though she wrote them all the way up until 2018, which is when her last novel was published, I consider them mostly historical curiosities for scholars of of young adult literature. Yeah. I, I read a lot of these. I read, I read Goosebumps and I read Babysitter's Club all at the same time. And That's honestly, a potent if you, mix. If you put the other couple ones into a blender, you kind of come out with this. This we, has body horror. It's true. For the young protagonist. It's got female friendships. Responsibilities for children who yeah. in mortal peril. But um, but the resolution always comes around to some sort of interpersonal 
situation. Yeah, that track's throwing some Judy Bloom in there. Mm. I, I feel like Judy Bloom is held up a lot better than... We must. <laughs> we must. We must. No, I don't. Thank you. <laughs> no, that's quite all right. Uh, the opposite problem. <laughs> uh, yeah. I. It was an important moment in young adult literature, and they kind of suck. I do not think these are sensitive works. I do not. Well, I think they're sensitive, but... <laughs> the line between intent and effect is wide and deep. Shall we say. Uh, now we should probably go to bed because I wasn't even supposed to be at work today. <laughs> okay, Dante. Yeah, so thank you so much for joining us on this not very lulzy outing. We're sorry. Um... <laughs> Our, our concentrated attempt to not be assholes that probably failed. Kind of a bummer, this book. Uh-huh. If you liked this episode anyway, you can find more of our stuff on SoundCloud. You can find more episodes of Drunk Book Club and our other movie podcast, Trash and Treasures. Um, if you leave us a rating or review, we'd appreciate it. You can also contact us via email at trashandtreasures underscore pod at outlook.com. Uh, or you can find us on social media at uh, uh Or we're on Twitter at TrashPod. Uh, and if you come and say hello, we'll give you a shout out on the show. We really appreciate everybody who's been listening and, and giving feedback. Uh, we're really grateful to have you around. Next time, we're slipping a little bit back into our comfort zone. with Into the comforting embrace of vampires. <laughs> you want to tell them? Yeah, uh, next Drunk Book Club, we're going to be uh, going with Poppy Z. Bright or Billy Martin's Lost Souls. Dorothy's been trying to get me to read this book for like a year and a half. Look, I was traumatized. Uh-huh. No, I'm looking forward to it. Next, we have to read The Witching Hour after that so you can fully grasp why wombs terrify me. <laughs> I mean, mood. Um, yeah, so trans dude writing vampires before he came out. That's going to be an interesting experience. So look forward to it. Uh, and in the meantime, take care of yourselves. See y'all. <laughs> <laughs>